This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. There was a year-long period where I was very torn. That fear-based state of once you're 35, it's all over. I started to lose that baby at my last speaking engagement. Right before I went out to do the talk, I went to the toilet and I saw some blood. I've struggled to find stories about entering motherhood without a mother. Mentally unwell, physically unwell, emotionally unwell. Then that's not really success, is it? Alison Rice is a mother and a journalist turned career and business mentor. She cut her teeth at the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism before going on to lead and launch some of the world's largest digital women's media titles into the Australian market. To some, she had it all. But a realisation that her work was perpetuating a kind of desire culture and leading women to question themselves would ultimately change the course of her career. It was then during those early days of motherhood that another monumental shift would occur. And this time, a heartbreaking one. Just as Alison was learning how to navigate motherhood herself, she lost her own mum. Here, she generously shares some of her most intimate moments from navigating multiple pregnancy losses alongside work and how the fear of never meeting her daughter has influenced the way she shows up as a mother today, to what it means to redefine success and what it's like to lose your mum during such a tender life phase. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the smart and spiritual Alison Rice. Alison, thank you for being here. Could you please start by introducing yourself and your family? Of course. Would you mind if I started by first making an acknowledgement of the beautiful country that I'm very privileged to be able to live and work on? It is the Gadigal country of the Eora Nation. And I just want to, yeah, take that first moment to pay my respects to their elders past and present. My name is Alison Rice and... A little bit about my family. I'm married to a wonderful man, a creative Tony Rice, and we have a little girl called Betty and her name actually is Betty Linda Rice and she's named after our late mums. So Betty is after Tony's mum and she was Elizabeth but was just referred to as Betty and her middle name is Linda, which is um, or was my mum's name. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. What a nice little acknowledgement. So in 2018, you made a pretty big career decision. You changed careers. You would have had a role that I imagine would have once upon a time been your dream until it wasn't. Can you take us back to the start and take us up to that? Oh, let's go right back. I don't think I've told this in a long time. Um, Well, I guess some necessary context as I go on to share what was a very glossy affair in the end. Um, is I was born and kind of raised in the west of Sydney, public school educated, come from a very, yeah, a sort of I, sometimes I call it disadvantaged, but I'm like now through the lens of my own privilege, not sure that's quite right. But it certainly wasn't an abundant childhood and had these big dreams to get myself out of that situation and leave, move to the big smoke and do the whole media thing, which I did. So I was like just to share that in the beginning because I know it can kind of sound uh, a certain way, um, but a lot of hard work and tenacity and cold calling and cold emailing, trying to cultivate a network. Um, I didn't have one at all. But I eventually landed in, um, moved to Sydney and lived in this <laughs> tiny uh, bedsit in Paddington. It was part of a share house that used to be like an outpatient care facility. And I remember I lived on the second floor and there was about eight rooms and it was all kind of really old men. And I mean, like very, very senior men. Wow. Um, and there was a share bathroom for men and a share bathroom for women, but it was all my bathroom because I was the only woman in the building. And 
yeah, I mean, it was like 200 bucks a week for this room that had like a kitchenette and a bed essentially. And um, I had to pay in cash through a safe in the wall once a week, but just like kind of that example of like the willingness. Wow. This sounds like something that had happened 40 years ago. Yeah. And I mean, I guess so this would have been like 20, I don't know, 2008 maybe. So are you just out of school here? No, I graduated in I think 20, 2003 mm-hmm. and then absolutely flunked my HSC, bombed it, did not get the marks, didn't get into uni and ended up studying as a mature age student, which at that time I think I was 21. So I was like, now it's quite funny what they deem as a mature age student. Um, but did my communications degree majoring in journalism and then went on to do, as we all do, many, many, many unpaid internships. And one of those internships actually was one of the reasons I moved to the city in the first place is I got an internship at the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism. And I'm a bit of a stayer. So once I get in somewhere, I tend to stick in there. And that was my story there as I went under the wing of someone who's still a mentor to me today, Mary Cotter. And it was an internship that turned into another internship that turned into working on a project at the time called Australia's Right to Know. So it was all about protecting free speech. And I worked on the Walkley magazine, which was all about the future of journalism, which is where I got really excited about digital. And this was like 2011, no, 2010. So we weren't really having active conversations about online media, uh, but I quickly knew that's kind of where I wanted to go. So I stayed there for some time, worked on the Walkley Awards, surrounded by my absolute like writing idols, meeting all these people, interviewing them, it was amazing. And it was in that job actually that I met my husband at a book launch and then decided to go and just fill some gaps I kind of knew I had in my ambition to work as an editor and that was um, just good, great, rich writing. So I went into a sub-editing role for a little while at Foxtel magazine. So I used to sub the TV guide. Um, So I did that. And then a friend of mine shared a job advertisement with me that was working on this very random US media title called Pop Sugar. And at the time it was called actually different things, Bella Sugar, Fab Sugar, something else. Something sugar. By the sugars. Lisa Lisa and Brian Sugar, shout out to you. And I went for it. And it was one of those jobs that nobody really wanted. It was a weekend editor role starting at seven and working till four at home. And it was predominantly um, street style and paparazzi celebrity coverage and any kind of breaking news at the time. So that led me into that business, which was published. The title was published by Alua Media, which was a new media business under Chris Jantz at the time, who's now done very many wonderful things. And I stuck in there as well. So I went from weekend editor and eight years later left as the group publisher of the women's division. So yeah, and then went on to launch obviously offline. And so I do want to get to offline now. You shared something really interesting in an interview that I read recently. And you said, I do want to share it because I think it's quite amazing what you said. You said, I would Google my name and start to see hundreds of stories about 10 ways to wear a white shirt or the right red lipstick for your skin tone. (laughs) I thought, no, I'm perpetuating this kind of desire culture that we have to have all these things and instructing a team of journalists to make women question themselves and make them want things that ultimately aren't going to make them happy. When you have those realisations, there's no going back. I thought that was quite an amazing reflection to have. Mm. So can you tell us what happened next? Maybe let's start with realising that and then what happened next with your career. Mm. So this was um, really the time I was in that group publisher role and I was looking after Pop Sugar and Who What Where and Birdie in my domain. This is my dream job. Like I had an incredible team of editors, mainly women under 30. I mean, that came with its own texture, but also a lot of joy really finding my feet as a leader, doing all the things we do, like winning the awards and writing really phenomenal strategy, making a lot of, you know, there was there was an intention back then for kind of social impact and values-led content, but part of my remit was reach and increasing the size of the audience so we could make more money essentially. And there was a set of um, strategies that we used to do that and volume clickbait and listicles and these sorts of pieces of content were what did that. So that was kind of the direction into the team. And I think for a while that was okay. 
And I was still very heady and sort of very kind of in that more masculine energy of kind of leading and running a business unit and um, getting really, really incredible strategy from the States and working closely with the team in LA. And so for a long time, it was like, this is awesome. And then kind of alongside that awesomeness, I started to really explore this concept of true self. So I've always identified as spiritually curious and I just really started to pay more attention to hold on, like, what am I really? And what is this all about? And why are we here? So these two things were kind of happening at the same time. And then eventually one just took over the other. And the more I learned about the truth of what I am outside of Alice and the individual, the less comfortable I felt with using, you know, my kind of energy and my gifts and my skills to fund something that was making people ultimately unwell in some way, shape or form, um, as you said, in that kind of desire culture. But that was, there was a year long period where I was very um, torn of like, shit, shit, I'm going to have to leave, shit, shit, yeah. this doesn't Which feel good Which is hard in my body. when it's been your dream for a while too, right? Yeah. So I think a very slow letting go. Um, and then I had quite a long notice period as well. Um, but that's kind of what led to me launching the podcast offline at the time which I'm still recording for now, my goodness, five years later. I always say we never start a podcast thinking we're going to be doing like, <laughs> well, I didn't that's anyway. Incredible. But that's really what offline was. It was a bridge from what I was doing to somewhere else. And I really just thought it would be a project I would do between jobs. I just kind of assumed I would go into another job. And it did so well in that first season. And I was like, hold on this true self thing. People want to know about it. And yeah, literally the rest is history. It's like 110 episodes later, five years, a whole co a mentoring business. Wow. And can you tell us a bit more about your mentoring business and how that's grown? Yeah. So the way I like to talk about my work is um, that it's very kind of dynamic in everything I do um, meets the need of a time as I see it within my community. And so that means I'm kind of changing it up all the time, which I kind of need as a creative as well as not to be doing the exact same thing every month or every year. But it was on the podcast that I sort of found a, a role I didn't think was there for me in sharing my insights and my knowledge, particularly as it relates to leading and strategy, um, content strategy and social strategy. It would just naturally come up with my guests because a lot of them in those early days were some of the country's biggest influencers. So we're having, you know, these conversations about growing audiences and being in the public eye and all of that stuff. And so I was just sort of naturally sharing what I knew. And then that led to people emailing me and DMing me saying, hey, can we get a coffee? Can I ask you some questions? And for a while I was like, yeah, sure. And then I was like, oh, hold on. I should, <laughs> should be probably be getting paid for this. <laughs> um, and I think so many of us have that time when we leave jobs is part of it is that it still stimulates us in some way and that that desire to want to be wanted, you know what I mean? Um, and then you kind of realise, oh, I might have let it go a little bit too far and not kind of realised my, um, acknowledge my value and what I was giving in terms of value. But that really prompted me to start one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, so developing an offering for that. And then that led to writing an online course about true self, because that's kind of one of the primary things people come to me for is what the fuck am I? Who am I? How did I get here? You know, what am I going to do next? Just and the small so, questions. Just a small question. And that actually, <laughs> you know, that's the whole point is I wrote the course because I was like, you have to just be with all of the wisdom. It's not one question and one answer. It's this whole kind of, you know, it's this breadth and depth of this wisdom. So that led me into the kind of world, I suppose, of online learning. And that was 2019, I think 2020. And then I went on to develop a membership space, which I run now. And that's called Off. That's a seasonal professional development space. And I've recently, speaking of motherhood and seasons, I've just started offering one-on-one -on -one career mentoring. And I'm just about to start offering one-on-one -on -one strategy again. So the time is right for me to be able to work in that way. But thus far, it's just been more about the podcast and some more kind of group 
stuff. It seems like it's been a really perfect evolution with what's been happening in your life and what's been happening, I guess, in the broader world. So that's really fascinating. Now, I want to get to the motherhood side of this. When did talks of starting a family enter the picture for you? And was it something that stressed you out from a career point of view? So Tony is 13 years older than me. And I suppose I acknowledged that if we were going to have children, which I always wanted to, but of course you don't have that conversation until a certain point in the relationship or for many, that was true for me. But if we were going to have kids, if he had a desire desire to as well, that we probably didn't have all the time in the world. (laughs) So that I kind of knew early on in the relationship and it was around 2017 that I started to feel probably more of the societal pressure. I was getting asked the question a lot. We'd been married for, I think, at least five years. And so people are a bit like, what's going on here? You know, but it's just that really frustrating thing that so often for women, we start to peak professionally at the same time our ovaries do essentially, you know. It's so unfair. It's so unfair how it's built like that. But of course, you know, we're supposedly designed to have children in our kind of early 20s and this is what makes it quite complex now because it takes us a very long time due to that kind of inequality and inequity in workplaces to get where we need to be Mm. in terms of our earning power and um, potential. So yeah, so it was probably around at the same time I'm in this kind of world of what am I really and what's it all about and when am I going to have a baby and this is my dream job. Oh my God, what's what's going on? It was all in that time. We started trying, I think, in 2017 and it just took, as many will know and can attest to, I'm sure, longer than mm. what I ever thought. I mean, I kind of had thought, oh, you know, suppose if it takes six months or so, like whatever. But I remember very early days of trying, there was still a bit of a feeling like I was going to have to make a a compromise. So I'm going to say mm. I was kind of one foot in on the timing and one foot out, but a bit like, oh, we better get going, like the just-in-case programming I'd had. And I was 33, I think. So I was sort of pushing up against that age where, you know, when people sort of that fear-based state of once you're 35, it's all over. Like, no. <laughs> so, yeah, and then sadly suffered some losses learnt that I had low egg quality and so it was like it's funny now like looking back on it but it was really hard at the time we obviously went into that time of testing and we're even exploring IVF even though we ended up having Betty naturally and I was like convinced it was Tony's sperm you know and you're like well you drink a lot of beer and you're older and like yeah <laughs> I'm this like vessel this yeah and I look after myself I'm fine Right. And we're so aware of it. And it comes back and the IVF doctor was like, this is, he did all the initial testing. He was like, so Tony's got like this Superman sperm. I was like, typical. (laughs) And Al said, (laughs) you have low egg quality. So it wasn't a um, volume of eggs. It was the quality of the eggs. And so he had essentially said, you'll get one. Mm. It's just that you may have to endure more losses than normal than is, Mm. you know, deemed normal to get there. And so that was a bit of an acceptance, I suppose, but that definitely put the pressure on where I was like, you know, now I'm 34 and like, we've been trying consistently for a long time now. And then, yeah, I suppose navigating those losses and trying to remain really um, hopeful and eventually conceived her in early 2020. Wow. So that was quite a pivotal time for you because that's when you'd decided to leave your business, launch your own or leave your former job and launch your own business. How did you navigate losses, challenges that come with pregnancy while trying to keep up with all of that? So the um, the first time I fell pregnant actually um, was about six to eight weeks, maybe eight weeks before I finished in the role. Oh, wow. And I don't know if I've actually shared this before, but um, I'm happy to. I started to lose that baby at my last speaking engagement. And you know when you're so, like the kind of stress of leaving and nobody understanding why I was going and everyone saying, what are you doing? This is the best job. You've got the job everyone wants and trying to kind of stay true to myself. But really quite dissociated actually because of that. I think I was in a bit of survival and I remember 
right before I went out to do the talk, I went to the toilet and I saw some blood and I was thinking, well, that's not good. But I also know it's not necessarily that bad. So let's just get through tonight and and we'll see. And then again, like bleeding overnight, I continued, I I um, recorded a podcast episode the next morning with my girlfriend, Kelly. I hadn't announced my pregnancy. No one knew it was so early. And we did the coastal walk and all this really fucked up stuff. Now that I think back, I'm like, Alison, my love, you know, but I just didn't have that, that care, I think for myself that I know now my needs very deeply and honor those fully, but you know, and the loss to come, the kind of beautiful thing for me, if I'm honest, is it was all able to be explored in my work. And that for me is a gift because so much of what I create is felt and it's, you know, what my community is moving through, but also what I'm moving through and teaching from that really kind of lived experience. So yeah, in a way offline was this kind of therapy and you'll hear it in particular seasons, you'll know, because I start to really get into those topics. I interview people who had also experienced loss, like my girlfriend, Lee and I, um, there's another one I recorded with where we didn't actually run it because it was too much. We basically mm-hmm. just had a therapy session together and then both went, no one's ever hearing that. Ever. We are not releasing that. <laughs> um, but there is some episodes there where we, you know, we kind of go there and you can hear I'm like visibly or audibly um, mm-hmm. upset and just going through it. But it offline for me was a real grounding I think that it kept me kind of tethered into something that I really believed in in a time where I had no control Mm. and just that feeling of like is this going to happen for me or not and I guess your spirituality would have helped you as you're saying in that sense you're quite a deep thinker I can tell so you'd be exploring rather than just getting angry at it oh yeah that was the big thing for me is like (laughs) nothing's happening to us it's happening for us And you got to be really careful when you say that and who you say that with, because it has this true ability to bypass Mm. the pain um, and the real trauma that people are experiencing. But certainly where I was at with my own kind of spiritual study and exploration, then I was so in the wisdom that that was also kind of that, um, that branch I was hanging on Mm. to is I know there's something here for me if I can only just accept that this is for me and really start to feel into the texture of it. And honestly, I know people say this, and especially for anyone who's listening, who's going through that challenge, um, you're like, shut up because it's, you know, it happened for you. It always happens for everyone, but me, and that was me as well, but I would not take it back. Mm. I would do it again and again and again, because I mean, the work is one thing, how it's deepened my work and bonded me more closely to my community. But the way I've shown up as her mother, I could not have been this mother for her if I hadn't Mm. of, you know, really um, felt into the reality of never meeting her. And so you then do meet Betty in 2021. What was early motherhood like for you? (laughs) Oh, man, this girl. Um, So I had a really private pregnancy. I didn't announce it because I was so scared I was going to lose her and I didn't want to have to do that. Instagram post vibes. So I just went, you know what, I'm going to go to ground. It was the same time as the first COVID had hit. So um, in many ways, I feel like I'm one of those privileged people that I got to experience COVID in a way that was actually quite supportive to some aspects of my life, not all aspects, because my mum who eventually passed was quite sick at that time. So that was very difficult for her. So lots of duality, you know, like. Oh, going through motherhood at the same time as that. Oh, that's a, that's, yeah, that's the biggest, stretchiest, most expanding Mm. experience, the polarity, I suppose, of growing a life while Mm. watching a life being kind of slowly you know, coming to its end, like the, I don't know, that's some sort of threshold that we're either going to go through or we're not, to be honest. But again, definitely had a huge impact on how I've shown up as her mother. Um, But I do think, you know, I've struggled to find resources and podcast episodes and stories about 
mothers who are entering motherhood without a mother. Mm. I think that's just kind of like a whole other podcast episode <laughs> um, probably. But Betty, after a very yeah anxious pregnancy, I probably had more scans than the average Joe, um, chose private care because I knew and again, really privileged to be able to do that, but worked very hard to save to ensure that I could put myself in the position of calling someone, you know, if I needed to. I had an amazing obstetrician. And, yeah, when she came out, <laughs> I was like, is she breathing? You know, like, oh, So that, I, that yeah. fear just never stops. No, 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 no. And I suppose I thought, you know, I had this beautiful opportunity. I haven't actually spoken about the birth and I won't, but I did have this opportunity to pull her out. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, so it'll all just fall away. You know, my girl is here and everything's fine. But I did definitely experience a lot of postpartum, is it anxiety or postnatal anxiety? Mm. Perinatal? <laughs> I don't know. It's very confusing, isn't it? <laughs> I know, well, the, the, the posts. But I would say the first six months I was looking back very hypervigilant. I could not relax. Mm. Um, yeah, but I found overall that postpartum period, honestly, like, and this will trigger some people who I know have had a really hard time and I hold, and I mean that, I hold a lot of space for that, but I wanted her so bad. I just was honestly elated to like every time she woke up in the night, I was like, I'm here. Mum's here. Mummy. Um, so, yeah, and of course there were weeks and days and nights where it wasn't like that. But on the whole, I was just like, whatever I have to do, like mm. I'll take all of this because I know what it feels like to to feel like I might not get to experience get this. it. Yeah, so I loved the postpartum period mm. and we're only having one baby. So I look at mums now holding like those really little babies in the carrier while I've got this like extremely energetic toddler. I'm like, oh, I thought that stage was difficult. I know. <laughs> you know, so many people say this, but I do, um, I would go back if I could, of course, yeah. to those early months where you're just in that real dream state, I think, of mm. are we asleep, are we awake, are we feeding just Are so connected. Yeah, that enmeshment. So so I loved postpartum, mm. yeah. And we don't have to go any further here if you don't want to, but when you talked about losing your mother, I think about how this baby in one way would have been this healing balm, but in another, motherhood cracks you wide open and mm. you think about things that you've never felt before. Was it a mixture of those two? Was it a paradox of helping you heal but also bringing up more grief? Yeah, well, so timing-wise, um, Betty had been born and so wonderfully my mum, who's just the first grandchild, so my mum got to meet her. Um, so I think the very unique grief I was feeling at that time was it was almost like I was grieving the experience that she would have had had she not have been sick because mm -hmm. we had held that for each other. You know, she was so excited you know, that Betty was coming and uh, for various reasons, we had moved her, my sister and I, from where she was living closer to me in Bondi. And so we had, this was before she got diagnosed with cancer and we had all these grand plans where she was like, I'll take care of her anytime. Like you don't need daycare. You won't need a babysitter. I, you'll be struggling to get her off me, you know? And so I'm feeling at this point, oh, wow, like how supported, like, not only financially is that going to be a lot easier for us, but I'll be able to stay in my work and all these wonderful things. But the timing was um, mum had been diagnosed in the March and I fell pregnant with Betty in the May. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, so it was this very kind of, that, again, that duality, that the whole pregnancy and then the whole first year. Mm. And then, um, yeah, the the whole time that mum was alive while Betty was earthside, it was like a... Um, a dual care. So it was like, I didn't have my mum mm. show up in the way she wanted to. I knew I needed her to. And yeah. And I just, that's just my story. I just won't get to experience what it's like to have a mum that can come over and take the baby. Cause you mm. know, you don't trust anyone. 
you know, like even your friends or even your siblings, you're like, but your mum, you're like. Yeah, that's so true. Mum knows. Mum can She's the only the person I'd put above me for understanding what my son needs. That's so true. Exactly. And so so that was hard, like not, and still yeah. not having that, to be honest, is having that kind of person you can, or that other woman, that matriarch that you can kind of throw to and be like, you help me, <laughs> you know, jump in, uh, step mm. in for me. Um so, yeah, so it was a really hard time. You know, I can't even believe I'm talking about it without crying. It's probably, yeah. I'm some nearly sort crying. Of, <laughs> well, and, you know, I'm a massive crier, actually, anyone who listens to my podcast or is in my membership or anything. But I don't know, maybe it's adrenaline in this moment, mm. but um, I haven't really like, properly, properly talked about it. Yeah. But maybe it's the dissociation again, you know, we like, I can say the words without feeling the feelings. Cause if I let the mm. feelings in the body, then the whole thing is over. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I actually recorded an episode for my girlfriend's podcast, Zoe, I think it's coming out soon. And we speak about this topic at length because mm. she lost her mom when she was 17 and going on to have two beautiful kids without a mother. And then my kind of story of it all kind of happening at the same time. So definitely if anyone's like, oh, want to go a bit more on this, that's going to be out there in the world eventually, I think. I will listen to that. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I'm so glad your mum got to meet your beautiful daughter. So what, obviously you had a lot going on personally during maternity leave, but from a logistical point of view, what did maternity leave look like when you owned your own business? The other beautiful thing is so much of my mentoring work and my methodology I've applied in my own life and so I was very very deliberate with what I would and wouldn't do how much I needed to work financially versus what I could realistically kind of say a polite no to I recorded more or less an entire season of the podcast before I went on maternity leave yeah how many episodes is that I was a machine actually when I was pregnant (laughs) um I think I well, I used to do these very long 15 episode seasons. Now they're 10. Um, I think I had about seven in the bag when I yeah, gave birth to her. And so my maternity leave um, and work situation was really that I just had the podcast going and it was all scheduled. Like, again, I'm like a content engine and I just have really deep kind of systems and processes and it was all scheduled. So all I had to do every fortnight was basically put it on Instagram. Mm. And so that felt really good to have had been that prepared. And then I slowly started to kind of think about, okay, well, I'm going to have to make some actual money here and start to grow and develop the business. And I think that was around the time she was maybe eight months old So, yeah, so that probably was the extent of my maternity leave, if I can call it that. And then I went into a really big kind of creative build phase to put the membership together because that was kind of the next evolution of the brand and the business. So how did you find ramping work up in those early days of really starting to return in a bigger way? I loved it. And I think Um, At that time, I had engaged some support. So I had like a colleague, essentially, I'd never had one in this business before. And we were just bouncing off each other. And actually, our kids, our little girls were born like a day or two apart. So we were, yeah, so also, I mean, she was a second time mum, but we were experiencing the same milestones with the girls at the same time. And we really understood which you don't know until you know how amazing it is to work with other mothers because it's this unspoken, like, I can't today. You're like, no worries. Or, you know, if you see them working quite late at night or early in the morning, you just trust that they're just doing what they have to do. So I felt really stimulated in a good way, really creative. I think I hadn't realized how literally our brain chemistry changes, you know, when we grow humans inside our bodies, if we're privileged to be able to do that. I didn't ever connect how that would flow into my mm, ideas and about my creativity. Yeah. I was like, I was getting all of these downloads. I felt so tapped into source. It was just like this really magical time. And, um, Yeah, and then went on to kind of birth the next evolution of the business, which has been going now for the second year of the membership. 
Wow. Or space. I call it a space. Not a <laughs> <laughs> and so then what have been some of the challenges of trying to navigate work alongside parenting? Uh, I think it is, for me, always going to be the creative restraint because I'm a really creative person and I have always just had these downloads, you know, that kind of drop in and usually I act on them. And so it's been about going either not mine or not now, you know, idea, go to somebody else because Mm. I'm not the vessel to fulfill at this time or that's amazing, kind of write it down and potentially revisit it. So it's been um, really trying to honour my desire to be a present parent for her and ultimately to give her the highest quality of me first, to give her my consciousness and like the wisdom is for her, you know what I mean? Mm. It's not. It's like she gets the dregs of it and everyone else gets the best of you. Yeah. Mm. So that's probably been um, the most challenging part is just making sure that I'm continuing to reorient myself if I need to, you know what I mean, in the moment and not letting it lag too long if I feel that the priorities aren't quite in order. I've been quite quick to make changes. Yeah, if it's not mm. um, if it's not feeling like she is my primary focus mm. and that the work and community and everything else comes secondary and the marriage and the friendships and all of the a million other things in our know, lives all of those things so yeah you sound like someone that's always been quite organized and perhaps good at boundary setting or maybe that's a learned skill which one is that is this something that you've innately been good at organizing and setting setting boundaries or is this something you've learned Systems design and I guess just like organizational thinking, like, yes, that's always felt quite innate for me. I kind of love taking what is a really big idea and concept and then figuring out how it's going to land, where it's going to live, how it will be engaged with. I love all of that stuff. So I'm very detail orientated. I try not to kind of go into the perfectionism piece. I'm not a huge kind of believer in that, but I definitely have sometimes an overextended attention to detail <laughs> that I could probably chill out a bit on, but um, but I get a lot of joy out of thoroughness. So yeah, so that has always been innate for me in every job, um, which has made me a really, I think, efficient creator and leader. Um, but the boundaries, they were learned for me, for sure. They definitely something I've had to learn how to establish and then learn how to maintain. So the boundary setting is one thing, the boundary mm. keeping oh, is they're different beasts, aren't they? They definitely are. And I suppose that very natural tendency to want to please and to be that person who says yes, but I think Betty is the only reason why I've been able to say actually no. So without her, I think I still would have been really challenged in that department, but now Mm. it's just super clear for me. There is just, I don't even waver on it. You know, I just know immediately Mm. in the body if it's going to be a yes or a no. And also as a career and business mentor, like I have to model it. (laughs) So in my membership in the space I run, I'm actively modeling my boundaries and my working Mm. hours when I respond So I take that really seriously. Like you'll never receive an email from me outside of working hours, try and be really diligent with out of office if I'm not actually going to be online for a few days. Um, Yeah, all of those things. So yeah, I've got to walk the talk. Yeah, that's really impressive because I think that can be the hardest thing. And you've just reminded me of a conversation I had with Ambika Pai, who was on this podcast. And we were talking about how it's interesting that we only start to set boundaries when it's for our babies. Like it's like the first time we become properly selfish is still in service. And it's such a paradox because it's like we're trying to be like, no, I matter and my energy matters, but I'm like, I'm still doing it for my son. Can I just figure out how to do it for my actual self? For myself. That's a really interesting kind of framing for it. Like I've never thought about the fact that I still need an external motivator. Yeah. To help me keep those boundaries 
in place. So you've left me now with something I can go and do a little bit. Yeah, and look, I've got no answers either, but we'll both have to think on that one because, yeah, it's something that I realised I'm getting better with boundaries, but it's still for someone else. For someone else. So for anyone that is unfamiliar with your work, can you tell us about what true self-success means? Yeah, so this is the thing that actually one of the bigger downloads after I had Betty is I'd been having all these honest conversations. I've been having over 200 one-on-one what was then kind of career coaching sessions prior to having her, I had written the course. So I had this kind of really beautiful growing body of work, but I still hadn't made contact with like, what is this though? Like I couldn't really talk about it in a sentence. It was all kind of around the same sorts of things. Mm. But what landed for me after having her was an actual methodology for what I call true self-success. And it is that success is individually defined and internally experienced. And I think we all know this on some level is that it doesn't really matter what it looks like. It's how it feels in the body. So we can have the title, the shiny email signature, you know, as you did, as I did the, Mm. you know, corporate salary, potentially we can have all of these kind of traditional markers and milestones of what it means to be successful. But if we're waking up every day and feeling out of integrity or that our values don't align anymore, or we're mentally unwell, physically unwell, emotionally unwell, then that's not really success, is it? So Mm. we can have none of those things, but then feel complete peace and fulfillment in the body. So this is kind of how I think about success. It has to be defined by us because so many of us, especially ambitious women and and working mothers, we have been kind of pointing towards an ideal of success that was born out of a, let's be honest, like patriarchal system that is a direct feeder into capitalism. Mm. And we have these awakenings where we're like, hold on, who am I doing this for again? Whose is this? And I think that's kind of why people come to me. It's at that transition point when you realize, okay, it's not this. I've realized it's not this, but now I have no idea who I am or how I define my value potentially in the world without this thing that I, of what I do, Mm. you know? So a big part of my work is really helping people understand that we're not what we do for a living. And that is not how we define our, excuse me, our value in the world. Our work and our career is a productive outlet for us, but it isn't the actual way we become fulfilled because fulfillment, again, is that's our natural state. Mm. We are fulfillment and we export that into people, places, situations, our work. So it's just spitting it around the other way. And so what's really beautiful is members of my community and people I mentor, for somebody success is working three days a week, only doing five hours on those days they are working, spacious time with their kids. For some people it is the full-time high-flying job, earning a certain amount of money, wonderful. But you have to know when you get it Mm. that you chose it, you know, and that you accept it and that in the body you wake up, you go, yes. And it actually feels good rather than Mm -hmm. looking good. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like I just had a bit of a therapy session. I love that. That's incredible. <laughs> well, that's how people talk about my work. So if you <laughs> like the vibe, that's I might have to have a one-on-one with you. <laughs> there's a lot of awakenings, a lot of emotion, a lot of shedding, building up from the ground, really, and re-establishing the role our work plays in the overall kind of storyline mm-hmm. of our life and what it means to live a full and expressed existence, you know. We've all seen the quotes of those people on their deathbeds in their 80s talking about how they wish that they didn't just slog themselves at work their whole lives. Mm-hmm. So it's like getting people to realise that before that happens, while they're exactly. actually living their life. Yeah, well, bef- before they reach, like a lot of people come to me having experienced diagnosed burnout. So um, wanting to kind of catch it before it makes us truly unwell um, because that can take a long time to rebuild and for a lot of people I mentor that have experienced that they can never really operate at that sort of idea of full capacity again 
Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, which I think from what I've been told and what I've observed is really hard because then you start to feel like you did it to yourself. But we've got to remember that the system did it to us. You know, we are only doing what we've been taught. We're only going and getting the things we've been told to get. But I think this is the big kind of collective awakening that's happening now. And it's, you know, being led wonderfully by women and mothers who are like, nah. (laughs) Because we've had that time to pause because you're really on a hamster wheel from the moment you're born. Yeah. And you don't take much time to reflect, which is so sad because we all need to reflect on our lives and how we Mm -hmm. feel in them. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of runs into um, this idea of seasons, which I teach about a lot. And professionally, we earn different things in different professional seasons. Like some seasons I've been in one of them, it's it's an earning season, money. You know, we're kind of getting up there in terms of our earning potential. Some seasons we choose to learn mentorship or new skills, or some seasons we choose rest and flexibility. But I think the key to this idea of kind of professional peace is acknowledging the season you're in, accepting it and surrendering into it instead of being in resistance to the season the whole time of this isn't it and I need more and it should be this. But actually at your deepest need, you said you needed to rest. And so you might just have to get a job that doesn't require you to overextend yourself or give more than what you actually have to give at the moment. But that's the ego, isn't it? Where we're like, but I'm not stimulated. I'm not relevant. I'm not growing, but I'm not who I was. That's right. So this is the shape of my work, to be honest. This is what we're getting into every day is the realities of living through this because it's all right for me to say it. But when you're in it, you need a helpline to be like, what have I done again? You know, like people leaving their jobs three months later, they're like, fuck, I'm like, I know. I done. (laughs) (laughs) So the membership I have a, um, I do voice mentoring. So it's voice Mm. memos from me. And in the beginning, I was like, you know, just five or 10 minute responses. I'm like, I crack like 30 minutes a lot of the time. They're like these mini podcast episodes. (laughs) But um, this is where you can ask questions on email. And so far I've answered all of them. I shouldn't set the bar too high, but I then record the voice memo response and I send it into a community WhatsApp group. So everyone gets to listen and just learn from each other because we're all going through oftentimes the same stuff just at different um, kind of times, but you need a helpline, don't you? You need someone to be like, Mm. we've got this and the community, we're kind of moving around this shared belief that we define success for ourselves, but it's going to be uncomfortable because people aren't going to understand it all the time. Yeah. You've just reminded me of something that I've been thinking of pretty much since I had my son, which is that I'm probably a very categorically busy, ambitious person who's go, 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 used to fit anything into my calendar that I could. And then I had my son and I really enjoyed the slowness of being connected to him and slowing down and breastfeeding and all of that. And I really consciously remember thinking to myself, like, don't lose some of this feeling when you go sort of back to your everyday life. What do you tell people that are sort of jostling between that ego and that productivity machine and that want to slow down and just enjoy themselves and enjoy their life? Well, I think this is where the restraint comes in. We have to have the capacity to witness our behavior. So this is witness consciousness where there is space between the observation and the doing, the observation of the doing. And so if you can look at your behavior and you can know that the action I'm taking isn't serving me and not doing the thing I said I would do, this is half the battle. Usually we're just doing it unconsciously, you know, where it's just happening. We're in this kind of frantic action. And then we might get to the point where we hit a wall or we have the breakdown or we, whatever it might be. But part of my role, I suppose, as a mentor is to keep you in that suspended state of awareness of your, let's call it um, more egoic motivators. So we can identify them. We know they exist and we can quickly spot when we're doing the thing. And then we pull ourselves back into that true essence and that true nature again. But this all kind of stems from beautiful ancient wisdom. And the more you're around it, the easier it is to fall back into it. And that's kind of the function of the space as well is to keep us surrounded by this sweet knowledge that keeps us tethered 
into our essence and into our truth in a world where we just have to walk out the door and be so overstimulated or get on our phone and move into comparison, 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 doom scrolling, you know, which I'm not exempt from, by the way, I'm not perfect either, but at least I have this space, which serves for me as it does for others, where we remember our true nature. We remember the truth of what we're, what we are and why we're really here. Like, why am I in this body? Mm. (laughs) What have I come down to experience and surrender into or evolve beyond? But we, I think we, what we're kind of missing and and part of the reason I created the space is we're feeling quite isolated. Despite all this hyper-connection, right? Exactly. It's us and the screen, but it's a very one-sided conversation we're having with ourselves, isn't it? And so really coming back into community again and finding our people, you know, and allowing it to be just that, you know, so often it's like, well, what purpose does this serve in my life? And what am I getting out of this? And am I extracting the maximum amount of value I can uh, trying to move out of that thinking and just that this is a presence, this is a mainstay, this is somewhere again that just keeps me tethered into my truth, which is yours for you to define. But I'm just reminding you most days <laughs> to, do it. to come home. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you've given me a lot to think about. And I was just thinking that I've probably never mmmed so much through an episode. So I might have to cut a few of those out. Alison, if people want to find your work online, where should they go? Uh, the best place to go is getoffline.co, so .co. And I always suggest, again, because the nature of the work is very dynamic, I'm always changing it up and moving in and out of my own kind of seasons and capacity with work. So my email list, I know people are like, I'm not signing up to another list, <laughs> but it really is the best place because I only send one or two emails a month. There's a beautiful monthly mood I create and share, which just talks about the kind of cosmic quality of the time. I invite you into some self-inquiry and I'll share an episode of the podcast, but it is also the first place I just share what I'm doing and what I'm offering. And for the space, um, we open our doors twice a year. So it's not very often, but it's called off. So if you go to my website, you'll be able to see um, there's a whole dedicated page to kind of what it is. And we are opening for enrollments July (laughs) 2023. So that would be the next opportunity to hop inside and experience that four months inside each time incredible i have loved hearing your story and your wisdom thanks so much for being here what a pleasure thank you for having me thanks for listening to ready or not if you liked the show please tell your friends subscribe or write a review you can also find us on instagram at readyornot.pod That's it for today. We'll see you next time.